Let's begin with a word of prayer. A gracious, loving Father in heaven, thank you so much that we have a message, Lord, at this time. Thank you that Jesus is continuously interceding for us in the most holy place. And he is still offering pardon and justification, even though we are living in the time of judgment. Thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity this morning to share this beautiful message, Lord. May our hearts be open. May our minds be clear. May we understand the truth that belongs to our peace right now. Lord, hide me behind you right now. Let me speak your words, not my words. Use me in spite of myself. Speak to me, Lord. Speak to these people who are called by your name. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for being so gracious. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is part two of our study into the sanctuary. We're looking at the Adventist theology of the sanctuary, except we are looking at it from a uh, deeper, broader, and fresher perspective. Here's the next question. Why is there a need for another service on the Day of Atonement if forgiveness and justification have already been obtained for the worshipers during the daily service? Question number six. Do you understand what this question is asking? Why do we need another service? If the daily service is so good, so beautiful, brought us forgiveness and righteousness by faith, and our defects of characters are not shown, and we are accepted as if we have not sinned, what is the point of another service? The Day of Atonement. In Ephesians chapter 1, again, verses 5 to 7, we are accepted in the Beloved, and this is all daily service benefit, available even in the time of Paul, in the time of the Apostles, time of Martin Luther. Even though we have forgiveness of sins, why do we need another service? Colossians 1.28, we are perfect in Christ Jesus already. Colossians 2.10, we are complete in Him already, in Christ. We stand perfect and complete in all the will of God right now. Amen? Amen. Don't we? And we are all members of the church of the firstborn who are justified by faith, made perfect through the blood of the sprinkling. By the way, do you know what the blood of the sprinkling is a reference to here? This is sanctuary service language. The blood had to be sprinkled before atonement could be made and the sin forgiven. So the work of atonement in the heavenly sanctuary, where Jesus is sprinkling his blood, so to speak, crying out, Father, my blood, my blood, gives us his perfection. It's accounted to him. It's imputed to us. We are covered by the robe of his righteousness after our sin is taken away and transferred to the sanctuary. What else do we need? We have justification. We have sanctification. We have growth in grace. We have the impartation of the Holy Spirit. Aren't we all enjoying that this morning? We know what it's like to be forgiven. Our tears flow every time we know our sins are forgiven. We jump up and down with joy because we know that Jesus lives in our hearts in sanctification. What else do we need? We are perfect in Christ already. Romans 8 verse 1 says, 
There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a beautiful passage. And it's yours even now. No condemnation, folks. In Romans 5, verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the words of Ellen White again, Christ's perfect character stands in place of our defective characters. And we are accepted before God just as if we have not sinned. Our imperfection is no longer seen, for we are clothed with a robe of Christ's righteousness. Why is it that Aaron had to go into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement and make another atonement to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord? What's the point of making another atonement when atonement was already done every day? To forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to present us, every man here, every single person here, perfect in Christ Jesus. Do you see the point of the question, folks? This is where we come in as Seventh-day Adventists now. This is where the rubber hits the road as far as we are concerned. This is the reason why the Seventh-day Adventist church was established. Because God wants a people who will go through not just the daily service experience, but the Day of Atonement experience as well. Amen? You signed up for this. What is the difference between the atonement that the daily priests, the common priests made every day, in other words, and the atonement that was made by the high priest on the Day of Atonement? Is there no difference? If there is no difference, then there is no reason for us to be Seventh-day Adventists. What is the difference between the work of cleansing that John writes about in 1 John, verse, 1 John 1 verse 9, where he says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. What is the difference between that cleansing and the cleansing that we talk about here in Leviticus 16 verse 30? To cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Folks, if we can't tell the difference, we don't know why we are Seventh-day Adventists. What is the difference between the cleansing John writes about in 1 John verse, chapter 1, verse 9, and Daniel 8, 14, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed? That's what we are here this morning to discover for. I hope you're with me. Is the uh, question clear? If the priests went always into the first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God, resulting in the forgiveness of sin and justification by faith, then why did the high priest have to go alone once every year on the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifices for the errors of the people? You see what I'm saying? What is this errors of the people? I keep bringing it up. I haven't told you what it is yet. In a minute or so, you will know what it is. The reason why there was a need of another service called the Day of Atonement service, the reason for that is because the daily service, wonderful as it is, 
was an incomplete work, folks. Am I making sense? Incomplete. Forgiveness and being perfect in Christ is not God's final solution to the sin problem, folks. God does not just want to keep forgiving you, you keep coming back and asking for more, and he has to forgive you again, and you keep coming back for more. It never ends. You sin till the cows go home. Forgiveness, wonderful as it is, justification by faith, righteousness by faith, beautiful as it is, again, is not God's final solution to the sin problem. The Day of Atonement is not just about cleansing of articles and furnitures and compartments, first tabernacle, first apartment, second apartment, but it's more importantly, the cleansing of God's people. So that you never again have to defile the sanctuary. Make sense? How many of you can relate with that? Might be a radical thought for so many of you. But I hope God is speaking to you right now. I can only do so much here. I hope God is speaking to you and convicting you of the truth that we need to understand at this time. Present truth. The daily service was an incomplete work, folks. The fact that the high priest made another atonement on the day of atonement shows what? It shows that the atonement made by the common priests daily was not full and complete even though it resulted in the forgiveness of sin and the justification of the worshipers. It was not full. It was not complete. If the atonement made by the common priest daily were full and complete, then what? There would be no need for another work of atonement in the second apartment on the Day of Atonement. It would be redundant. It would be unnecessary. Does that make sense? Good. The fact that the high priest went alone into the second apartment of the sanctuary in Hebrews 9 verse 7 to offer sacrifices first for himself and then for the errors of the people means that these errors, whatever they are right now, I haven't defined them yet, they were not dealt with during the daily service. In fact, they could not be dealt with during the daily service. If the atonement made by the common priest daily had been complete, there would be no more errors of the people to deal with on the Day of Atonement. Does that make sense? The fact that the high priest had to deal with errors of the people on the Day of Atonement means it could not be dealt with during the daily service. So now I know you're all excited about these errors of the people. What does that mean? Hang in there. We will talk about that in a minute here. This is from uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, 355, 356. Important truths concerning the atonement were taught the people by this yearly service. What kind of truths? Important. important truths. If it's important, we need to know about it. In the sin offerings presented during the year, a substitute had been accepted in the sinner's stead, but the blood of the victim had not made full atonement for the sin. It had only provided a means by which the sin was transferred to the sanctuary. Are you following me? By the offering of blood, the sinner acknowledged the authority of the law, confessed the guilt of his transgression, and expressed his faith in him who was to take away the sin of the world. But listen, he was not entirely released. From what? 
from the condemnation of the law. Isn't this a kicker, folks? I thought I was forgiven. I thought the sin was taken away from me and transferred to the sanctuary. Why is Ellen White saying that I am not entirely released from the condemnation of the law? Have you thought about this? I thought forgiveness was everything. Peterson Prophecy 57. It gets even worse. The blood of Christ, while it was to release the repentant sinner from the condemnation of the law, was not to cancel the sin. So when the sin is forgiven, what happens to that sin? Does it evaporate? It is transferred into the sanctuary to tell you that the sin is not canceled. There is a record kept of that sin in the sanctuary, even though it is forgiven. It would stand on record in the sanctuary until the final atonement. So now she's talking about what here? She's talking about a final atonement. Listen. This is where this is, I'm, I'm so excited. This final atonement, this is what defines us as a people. This final atonement is what makes us who we are. And I hope you're excited about this. I hope you're listening. I hope, I hope you're paying attention. So in the type, the blood of the sin offering removed the sin from the penitent, but what? It rested in the sanctuary until the day of atonement. How many of you have been forgiven of your sins? Where are your sins now? They are still in the sanctuary. And you and I are not yet completely off the hook, folks. We are not entirely released from the condemnation of the law. I know Paul says in Romans 8 verse 1 that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How do you harmonize that? How do you, know, how do you harmonize Alan White and Paul? Ellen White says, we are not entirely released from the condemnation of the law. Paul says, we, there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who is speaking the truth? Notice what Paul says, in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation to those where? Who are in Christ Jesus, of ourselves. You take away the in Christ part, who, what, what happens next? We are back in condemnation, folks. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Where is the peace? In Christ. Because God stands between God, because Christ stands between God and guilty man. We are accepted in the beloved. Notice how Paul writes, he's very careful. This is why we are not entirely released from the condemnation of the law. This is called the objective truth of the gospel. Subjectively speaking of ourselves, we are sinners, we are defective. What is the reason again why this is so? Why is the work done during the daily service incomplete? Why is the sin not canceled even though it's forgiven? Why are we not entirely released from the condemnation of the law? What is the reason for that? Anyone? We read it. Were you paying attention when we read a statement? Because 
the day of atonement, you know, that, that final atonement hasn't, hasn't taken place. And also, sins haven't been put on sin. Amen, amen, wonderful. Here is the reason, you got it, you're on the ball. Here's the reason why the daily service, wonderful as it is, don't get me wrong, the daily service is wonderful. A lot of people who lived in previous generations who were just deriving benefit from this work, even though they died defective, they are saved because of the daily service. They are saved. They died defective, they brought their defective characters with them to the grave, but they are justified by faith. They will go to heaven. Am I making sense? But that work is incomplete, folks. There's so much more to come. Here's the reason why the daily service work is incomplete. I'm going to read that statement again from Prophets and Kings. I'm sorry, Peters and Prophets, 355, 357. Important truths concerning the atonement were taught the people by this yearly service. In the sin offerings presented during the year, a substitute had been accepted in the sinner's stead. But listen, but the blood of the victim had not made, what? Full atonement for sin. If it's not full atonement, then what is it? Partial, there you go. It was partial atonement. It was not full atonement. It was partial atonement. Because of that, the sinner is not entirely released from the condemnation of the law, and his sin is not canceled even though it's forgiven. The sin rests in the sanctuary until when? The day of atonement. Do you understand now why the priest had to go in there on the Day of Atonement to deal with those sins that are recorded in the books? What is required for that to happen? Full atonement now. A full atonement. If the final atonement, if the, if the daily service atonement is wonderful, you put that side by side with the final atonement, the daily service atonement looks like Band-Aid, folks. You know what I mean? The atonement made by the priest every day that resulted in the forgiveness of sin, you put that side by side with the final atonement, where you become perfect as pertaining to the conscience, and there is no more consciousness of sin, that atonement made daily looks like Band-Aid. You cannot compare. The daily service, only partial atonement made by the blood of the victim. Since not canceled, but remain in the books. This is why the, uh, the data service is incomplete, even though they have been forgiven. Forgiveness, therefore, is a partial, limited benefit of the sanctuary service. Forgiveness is not the final solution to the sin problem. It is limited benefit. It's a wonderful benefit, but God wants to do more for you than just forgive your sins. The sinner not entirely released from the condemnation of the law. I'm summarizing here. And why is this so? Because the blood of the victim had not made full atonement for the sin. This is the reason why the atonement made every day. I'm not talking about the blood of animals now. The blood of Christ is the same. That's according to Peters and Prophets 357. The blood of Christ does not cancel the sin in the daily service. The sin stands on record on the day of, until the day of atonement. This is the reason why the atonement made every day was incomplete and the benefit derived was 
partial. You love forgiveness? Do you know what it's like to be forgiven? There's so much more God wants to do for you than just forgive your sins. God says, what about I do something to you so that you don't even have to come back and ask for forgiveness and defile my sanctuary? I'm going to cleanse you to the extent that you won't even remember that you're a sinner. How about that? This is what the final atonement is all about. Question number seven. Question number seven. Why did the priest only make a partial atonement for the sin during the, the daily service? Is this a good question? I'm sure you're asking this question right now. We know it's partial, it's not full, but why? Why did the blood of the animals, and the blood of Christ for that matter, not make a full atonement during the daily service? Why wait until the Day of Atonement? Why was the atonement not full? Any guesses? Could not the priest have done it? Oh yes, but why does the priest not make a full atonement? Why does Jesus not make a full atonement when he forgives our sins? Sin is not totally removed from our lives? Yes, yes. Why does Jesus not make a full atonement every time our sins are forgiven? Why just enough atonement to transfer that sin into the sanctuary? As Alan White says in Patriots and Prophets 355 to 56. Let's take a look at the important truths again that we need to learn about the work of atonement. Here's number one. Truth number one. There are varying degrees of atonement. A partial atonement which results in limited benefits. Forgiveness, justification by faith, but the sin is not canceled and remain in the books and the sinner is not entirely released from the condemnation of the law. And the sinner is placed on probation. Isn't that what we are right now? Probationers? This is because the benefit we receive from the daily service work of Christ in the sanctuary is partial. Limited atonement. And then there's the full atonement resulting in unlimited benefits. Sin is canceled or blotted out. And the sinner is entirely released from the condemnation of the law. This is the full and the final atonement. This is what we are looking forward to as Seventh-day Adventists. Truth number two. And this might sound new to a lot of you. This was new to me for a long time too. What is truth number two? God deals with sin only to the degree that it is acknowledged and confessed. Does that make sense? God deals with sin, and I think this is very fair, only to the degree that it is acknowledged and confessed. I repeat that because this might sound like a new concept to you. Which means, if we don't acknowledge our sins, then what? There is no forgiveness. There is no atonement for sin. If there is no acknowledgement, no repentance for sin, there is no atonement for sin. That makes sense. Partial acknowledgement of sin results in partial atonement for the sin. 
I'm going to read these verses here in a moment. And full atonement for sin has to wait then until the sinner acknowledges, acknowledges the sinfulness of his sin to the fullest extent. Is this all making sense to you? Is this fair? God deals with sin only to the degree that we acknowledge it. That's why we're put on probation. Very good. John 9, 40-41, And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? What did Jesus say to them? What did Jesus say to them? Jesus said unto them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remaineth. What did Jesus mean by that? Because you don't acknowledge your sin, in other words. You say you can see when in fact you are blind. Then what? Your blindness remains. Your sin remains. Do you see the point? That if we don't acknowledge our sins, then what? Our sin will remain in us. There will be no atonement to transfer that sin into the sanctuary so that it can be forgiven, folks. The Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive our sins of others. Yeah. And here, this verse tells us that there are, there are degrees of guilt and perception of guilt. Do you remember this parable that Jesus related when he was at Simon's, Simon the leper's house? And Mary was washing his feet. What did he basically tell in this parable? There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly what? Forgave them both. Tell me therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave the most. And he said unto him, thou hast rightly judged. But then... In reality, Mary, who had less guilt than Simon, was doing more to show her devotion to Jesus than Simon the leper was showing. Isn't that what the story is? Yes? In other words, Simon did not understand the extent of his guilt. He knew he was forgiven, but he did not really understand how guilty he was before God. He thought Mary Magdalene was more guilty than her, than him. Does that make sense? This is what I mean by we don't understand fully the extent of our guilt. The greater the guilt, what? The greater the guilt, the greater should be the repentance. Isn't that right? The more we perceive our guilt, the deeper our repentance will be. And the less we perceive our guilt, then what? The lesser will be the repentance. Here's truth number three. We are a lot more guilty of sin than what we acknowledge and confess every day, folks. Is this a true statement? Yeah. We are a lot more guilty of sin than what we acknowledge and confess every day. I know this is true in my life. And I know this is true in everyone's lives here. We are not conscious of, of the full extent of the sinfulness of our lives. Therefore, our repentance is not as deep. 
How many of you are going to humble yourselves this morning and accept this statement? We owe God a lot more than what we confess to Him every single day. The greater the perception of guilt, the deeper should be the repentance. Isn't that right? The less the perception of guilt, the shallower the repentance. The forgiveness formula in Leviticus 4.28 says, if the sin that he had committed come to his knowledge, then what? He brings a sin offering with him, with him, right? This is what the verse said. But let me ask you a question. How much do you think did that individual who brought a sin offering truly understand the nature of his guilt? How much do you think did he understand about his indebtedness to the law of God when he committed that sin, laid his hand on the animal and confessed that sin and killed that animal? How much did he understand about the depth of the sinfulness of that sinful act? I believe only a small portion. That's right. It's the same with us. We are so much more guilty of sin than what we acknowledge and confess every day. Therefore, partial acknowledgement and confession of sin results in what? Partial atonement for the sin, folks. Partial acknowledgement of the sin results in what? Partial atonement for sin, because God deals with sin only to the extent that we acknowledge it and confess it. Therefore, the final atonement waits until we realize to the full extent, the sinfulness of our sins. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes? Does that make sense? A lot of you are nodding your heads. Okay? <clears throat> this is the reason why Ellen White said in Thetis and Prophets 355-356, the blood of the victim had not made full atonement for the sin. Because the sin, even though it was confessed, was partially acknowledged. There's a lot more to sin, folks. A lot more to the sinfulness of our action than, we, than what we realize right now. In other words, we do not understand fully right now the extent of our guilt and our sinfulness. Therefore, our repentance is not as deep. Great Controversy 482. Let's try to understand this passage very clearly. Because here she explains the extent of guilt that we have that we don't typically understand. Every man's work passes in review before God and is registered for faithfulness or unfaithfulness. Opposite each name in the books of heaven is entered with terrible exactness. Every wrong word Every selfish act, every unfulfilled duty, and every secret sin, with every artful dissembling, heaven-sent warnings or reproofs neglected, wasted moments, unimproved opportunities. Listen, the influence exerted for good or for evil with its far-reaching results. All are chronicled by the recording angel. 
how much of this do we realize? How much of this have, have we confessed? A lot of us make poor choices in our lives. How much do we understand about the effect those poor choices are doing five years, ten years down the line? Do you know what I mean? When Adam and Eve ate that fruit, that forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, and confessed that sin, how much did they understand would be the effect of that one sinful act? 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years down the line. This is why I'm saying to you, we are a lot more guilty of sin than what we confess every day. Here's one more statement. 5 B.C. 1085, God's law reaches the feelings and motives as well as the outward acts. It reveals the secrets of the heart, flashing light upon things before buried in darkness. God knows every thought, every purpose, every plan, every motive. Now listen, the bombshell. The books of heaven record the sins that would have been committed had there been opportunity. God will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, folks. This is a scary statement. The sins that we would commit had we had the opportunity. Where is she pulling this from? Where is Ellen White pulling this up from? Is there a Bible text that supports this? Jesus said, Whoever looks at a woman with lust, what? Has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And everyone who says, raka, or fool, to his brother, what? Hath already committed murder, isn't it right? The only thing missing is the opportunity, folks. We are guilty of the sins that we would commit had we had the opportunity. How much of these sins have we repented of already. Desire of Ages 7.45 says, I don't have it in my slide here. The whole world stands charged with the murder and crucifixion of the Son of God. Who is guilty of the murder and crucifixion of the Son of God? You and I. How many of you right now are convicted of that sin and have repented of that sin? Sin is a lot deeper than what we think. Our confession of sin is not what it should be. We owe God a lot more than what we acknowledge and confess every day. Therefore, the atonement Jesus makes to forgive that sin is partial. And the benefits that we get are limited and incomplete, folks. He forgives that sin but he keeps that sin in the sanctuary. Why? Because we haven't fully acknowledged the extent of our guilt. And what's the problem? Why don't we have a knowledge of the depravity of our lives? Why don't we have a knowledge of the depths of our guilt? Why? What is the problem, folks? 
This is the next question. Question number eight. What is it about sin that makes it so hard to acknowledge and confess? There's something about sin that we don't understand, folks. Something about sin that we don't see, therefore we don't acknowledge it. Do you know what I mean? There's something about sin that we don't comprehend that we can't confess it. Mark 7, 22, 23. Jesus speaks about the dual nature of sin. I hope this is not too hard for you to grasp. I'm trying to make it as painless as possible. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed what? Evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from where? From within and defile the man. According to Jesus himself, sin is what now? It's dual in nature. There's sinful actions that come out of the heart that people can see, that you and I see, like transgressions of the law, adulteries, fornications, thefts, murders, covetousness. Jesus gives a long laundry list of these sins in Mark chapter 7. Sinful actions, sinful behavior, but there's much more to sin than what's on the outside. The heart, the sinful defective character, folks, which is the source of all human sinfulness, the thoughts, the feelings, and motives. This is the root of our sin problem. Jesus says, out of the heart come all these wicked acts that we do every day. Sins of commission and sins of omission. James 5, 7 says, if we know the good thing and we don't do it, to us it is sin. That's part of the sin problem too. How much do we know about the heart, folks? How much do we know about our hearts, our characters? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? What is Jeremiah talking about here in Jeremiah 17, verse 9? He's not talking about your behavior and my behavior. He's not talking about our actions. What is he talking about? Our heart, what's inside of us. Our defective characters. It's desperately wicked. Deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Who can know it? We don't understand the sinfulness of our hearts, folks. Here's a good illustration to show you what dual nature of sin means. It's called the iceberg analogy. Do you see that? The portion of ice above the water, we call the tip of the iceberg, the small chunk of ice we see above the water, represents our behavior, our sins, the things that come out of our hearts, that people can see, that we know, that we acknowledge. These are the things that we confess every day. 
because we see them, don't we? We acknowledge them because they are in the open. We can see them. But sin is a much deeper problem than that. There's the heart. What is that? It's the sin in me as opposed to sin on me. And what is it? Our thoughts, our feelings, the sinfulness of our human character, folks. Sin on me is the tip of the iceberg, our sinful actions. Sin in me, the more massive concentration of ice below the water, which represents our unknown sinfulness of heart, the root of human sinning. This is a reference to our defective character, made up of sinful, corrupt thoughts, desires, feelings, and motives, which are largely unknown because they are subconscious and therefore largely unacknowledged and unconfessed. How many of you will, how many of you understand what I'm saying here and will acknowledge that this is a correct statement? Yes? Deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, as according to Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Psalms 19.12 says what now? Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Now do you see the word errors there? What is errors associated with? Secret faults. The hidden sinfulness of life. Cleanse thou me from what now? Who can understand his errors? Who can know it? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Secret faults. In Romans 7, Paul has a special term for this. He calls it sin dwelling in me. How many of you are familiar with that passage? Romans chapter 7, verses 17 and 20. The good I want to do, I can't do. And the evil I don't want to do, that I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body that's taking me to death? What is Paul's problem here? Sin dwelling in me. Romans chapter 7, 15 to 20. Sin that dwells in me. That's our hearts, folks. This sin dwelling in me, this heart, this defective character that is inside of me is for the most part untouched during the daily service. Do you know why? We don't acknowledge it. We don't know it. What do we acknowledge when we confess our sins? The known sins, the, the sins that are represented by the tip of the iceberg, the sins that people see. But the things that I can't see, I can't acknowledge. Right? It has to be brought to the surface. I have to know about it before I can acknowledge it. Now I'm going somewhere with this. Are you beginning to see some light in this? Yes? Do you understand why Jesus waits until now? Why the final atonement has not been made? We are not in the point where we fully understand the sinfulness of our lives right now as I speak here. Therefore, Jesus does not yet make that final atonement. The depths of human sinfulness is an unrecognized, unknown problem 
for a lot of us even today. Therefore, it is unrepented of right now. I'm going to talk to you about Peter right now because Peter will illustrate perfectly what I mean here by unknown sin or unknown, unrecognized guilt. Remember the night that he was in the, uh, in the, with Jesus and he um, promised that he would never leave him, that even though all the 12 disciples, the 11 disciples would leave him, he would never leave him, that he would go to prison and death with him? Was Peter serious about that? Yes, he was. But then what happened when he was placed in that spot and he was placed in a crisis? What did he end up doing? The good he wanted to do, he could not do. And the evil he did not want to do, that he ended up doing. He denied his Lord three times. The sight of that pale, suffering face, those quivering lips, that look of compassion and forgiveness pierced his heart like an arrow. Conscience was aroused. Memory was active. Peter called to mind his promise of a few short hours before that. He would go with his Lord to prison and death. He remembered his grief when the Savior told him in the upper chamber that he would deny his Lord thrice that same night. Peter had just declared that he knew not Jesus. But he now realized with bitter grief how well his Lord knew him and how accurately he had read his heart. The falseness of which was what? Unknown even to himself, folks. Desire of Ages 313. Therefore, the daily service only took care of the sins that were known, acknowledged, and confessed. And the priest made a partial atonement for this sin. But the record of these sins remain in the books of record, books of heaven, even though they have been forgiven. Why? Because the sinner owed a lot more than what he confessed. Making sense now? Okay. God only deals with sin again to the degree that it is acknowledged. I'll have to double up here because I'm running out of time. If the sin that he had sinned come to his knowledge, what does that represent? That represents the tip of the iceberg. A reference to the sin that are perceived and known. But the large mass of ice below the water, which represents the sinful heart, still largely remained hidden and unacknowledged. So, here's the question that we need to be dealing with now. Question number nine. When and how will God, once and for all, deal with the root of all human sinning, the defective character, the bottom part of the iceberg? When is he going to deal with that? Don't tell me you don't know the answer yet. The Day of Atonement, folks. The Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest goes right to the root of the problem, the defective character, it, because it could not be dealt with during the daily service, because it was largely unknown. For on that day, Leviticus 16.30, shall the priest make an atonement to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. What does this passage mean? There are two things happening in this passage. To cleanse you. The final atonement is to cleanse you. Of what, folks? 
Not just the known sin now, that was dealt with during the daily service, but the defective, sinful character, which up to this point has been largely untouched and unknown, folks. And once you are clean, then what? That you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Your sins before the Lord and my sins before the Lord are the records of sins that were forgiven but could not be canceled. They were deposited in the books before the Lord. The final atonement blots out these sins, but not before you and I are cleansed. Do you see it? Yes or no? The blotting out of sin after you and I are cleansed first. Here Paul will explain it to us a little better. In Hebrews 9, 7 again, But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. This is what we are cleansed of on the Day of Atonement. Not known sins. He cleanses us of something much deeper than that. It's the errors, folks. And now it's time for me to define what error means. Are you ready? This is the part of this. This is the highlight of the study now. I hope you're paying attention. Errors, what is that? In the Greek, it's agnoema, which comes from the root word agnoeo, and I'm taking Strong's dictionary here. What does it really mean? It does not mean sin of ignorance. Sins of ignorance, as your NIV will tell you, it's a lot more than that. What is errors? It is something connected, it is something Defined as lacking information, it is to be ignorant, to not know, as lacking the ability to understand, to be mistaken, to be in error, to not understand. In other words, that which is ignored for lack of information or ability to understand. What does errors mean? What is Paul referring to then when he uses the word errors? He is referring to the part of our sin problem that we do not understand. What do you think that is? What do you think that is? Errors of the people is Paul's term in the book of Hebrews for the hidden, subconscious, sinful, defective character nature, the bottom part of the iceberg, folks. Agnoeo means something ignored for lack of information. So the high priest goes into the most holy place to deal with that thing that we have been ignoring all our lives and failing to confess for lack of information, folks. Do you get that? It is the heart, which is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Who can understand these errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Does it all connect together now? Is it making sense? Yes? We are nearing the end here now. Question number 10. When is this all going to happen? When is Jesus going to make his final atonement? And how is he going to do it? Would you like to know? Yes? Of course you would like to know. Question number 10. What is the mechanics and the timeline, the time frame of the final atonement, and most importantly, who will receive this benefit, folks? 
Who do you think will receive it? There are seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Which church do you think will get it? Who? Laodicea, folks. How do I know that? How do we know it is Laodicea? This is where the rubber hits the road now. This is where we come in as Seventh-day Adventists. Don't you know that Laodicea's problem is an unknown problem? Be zealous, therefore, and repent is the call of Jesus to the church of Laodicea. But what is Laodicea being asked to repent of? Something unknown. Thou knowest not that thou art miserable, wretched, naked, poor, and blind. What is Jesus trying to convict Laodicea of, folks? The top of the iceberg or the bottom of the iceberg? Why? Because Jesus wants to deal with it now. Jesus wants Laodicea to be the church who will go through the final atonement and experience final cleansing. Amen? Do you see it? If you look at the, seven, the, the churches before Laodicea, Ephesus, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, these churches that are told to repent of, of something, what are they being asked to repent of? What are they being asked to repent of? Known sins. Thou hast left thy first love, that's marital inf infidelity. Eating food sacrificed to idols, fornication. These are all what kind of sins? Known sins. Do you know why? Because the time frame of these churches coincides or synchronizes with the work of Christ in the first apartment of the heavenly sanctuary. These seven churches. These churches. But when we come to Laodicea, Jesus is now in the second apartment of the heavenly sanctuary. And he's there, he's there to deal with the errors of Laodicea. Am I making sense? What is the errors of Laodicea? The unknown sin of Laodicea. Be, there, be zealous, therefore, and repent. Laodicea is being asked to repent of a deeper unknown problem, folks. Thou knowest not. Who knows? How many of you understand how wretched, naked, miserable, full, and, and blind you are right now? How many of us here understand that? I don't. I don't. Before God deals with our unknown problem, it has to be exposed. God cannot give us the final cleansing until we come to a point in our experience that we fully realize the sinfulness of our lives. When do you think this will happen? When do you think Laodicea will finally come to grips with her errors so that God can deal with it in the final atonement? We don't see it in Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 is the Day of Atonement chapter. You read the chapter, you find nothing about the mechanics or even the timeline of when this is going to happen. And that's understandable because Leviticus 16 deals with the cleansing of the sanctuary. If you want to know the mechanics of the final atonement and the timeline, the timing of that event, as, we, as far as we are concerned, you go to the book of Zechariah, folks. The book of Zechariah. The vision of Joshua and the angel. How many of you have read this passage? In Zechariah chapter 3. Go home and read it, folks. Understand it. 
because in that chapter you find the mechanics of the final atonement as well as the timing of that event. The mechanics of the final atonement and the cleansing of Laodicea's errors, Laodicea's errors or defective character, again, is not explained in Leviticus 16 because the focus is on the cleansing of the two apartments of the sanctuary. You need to go to the vision of Joshua and the angel as found in Zechariah 3 to understand the mechanics and the timing of the final atonement. I'm going to read Prophets and Kings chapter 47, portions of it, to help you understand how this will all take place. And if you are Seventh-day Adventists worth your salt, you would understand what she's saying here. The vision, Zechariah's vision of Joshua and the angel, applies with peculiar force to the experience of God's people when closing scenes of the great day of atonement. Are we there yet? We're not there yet. The remnant church will then be brought into great trial and distress. Those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus will feel the ire of the dragon and his hosts. Satan numbers the world as his subjects. He has gained control even of many professing Christians. But here is a little company who are resisting his supremacy. If he, would, if he could blot them from the earth, his triumph would be what? Complete. As he influenced the heathen nations to destroy Israel, so in the near future, he will stir up the wicked powers of earth to destroy the people of God. Men will be required to render obedience to human edicts in violation of the divine law. Now tell me, what event is Alamite referring to here? Men will be required to render obedience to human laws in violation of the divine law. What is that? The Sunday law crisis, folks. When we enter that crisis, we are now in the closing scenes of the great day of atonement. My hair is standing. I'm so excited. <laughs> what will happen? Listen, she gives you a blow-by-blow -blow account of how this takes place. Those who are true to God will be menaced. Oh, I forgot to give it, give it a reference. It's Proverbs and Kings, 587, all the way down to 591. Those who, are loyal to, those who are true to God will be menaced, denounced, prescribed. They will be betrayed, both by parents and brethren, kinfolks and friends, even unto death. Their only defense, their only hope is in the mercy of God. Their only defense will be prayer. As Joshua pleaded before the angel, so the remnant church with brokenness of heart and unfaltering faith will plead for what now? For pardon and deliverance through Jesus, their advocate. They, they are fully conscious of the sinfulness of their lives. They see their weakness and unworthiness and they are ready to despair. What is this now? They see, they are, what? Fully conscious of the sinfulness of their lives. What is that, folks? The bottom part of the iceberg is fully exposed. This is the eye salve. Buy of me. Gold tried in the fire. The eye salve and the white raiment. All these three things you will find in this chapter. So Ellen White is clearly, clearly talking about you and I in this chapter. The chapter entitled Joshua and the Angel. What happens when we buy the eyes of? We see fully the sinfulness of our lives, something we never experienced before. Do you see that, folks? 
Why is this step important? Because until we fully realize this, God cannot deal with our unknown sin, our defective characters. Make sense? When Laodicea can no longer buy or sell, that's the time she will buy the eyes out. Am I making sense? When we are put in the fire, in other words, that's when this will all take place. I'm running out of time. The tempter stands by to accuse them as he stood by to resist Joshua. He points to their filthy garments, their defective, what? Their defective characters. He presents their weakness and folly, their sense of ingratitude, their unlikeness to Christ, which has dishonored their Redeemer. He endeavors to affright them with the thought that their case is hopeless, that the stain of their defilement will never be washed away. He hopes so to destroy their faith, that they will yield to his temptations and turn from their allegiance to God. What is the defective character? What is, I'm sorry, what is the filthy garment? I just gave it away. The defective characters, folks. This is what the high priest is dealing with now on the Day of Atonement. This is just more than sinful actions that we confess every day. This is the bottom part of the iceberg now. Laodicea's unknown problem, her misery, her nakedness, her poverty, her wretchedness. That's what on the, is on the table now. The high priest is going to deal with that. The assaults of Satan are strong. His delusions are subtle, but the Lord's eye is upon his people. Their affliction is great. The flames of the furnace seem about to consume them, but Jesus will bring them forth as what? Gold tried in the fire. So now we have two. We have the gold tried in the fire. We have the eyes of. One last thing remained, the white raiment. When are we going to receive that? I'm going to skip that to save time. As the people of God afflict their souls before him, pleading for purity of heart. What's the time frame again? Closing scenes of the great day of atonement, folks. Not 1844. 1844 was the opening scenes of the great day of atonement. This is talking about the Sunday law crisis. When we are grilled, put in the fire. That's when this will all take place. When our plastic cars are taken away from us and there's nothing more between us and God. When we are down on our knees and we have nothing else to hold on to. This will all take place at that time. As the people of God afflict their souls before him, pleading for purity of heart. This is day of atonement language, folks. The call to afflict the soul. This is what it is. As the people of God afflict their souls, pleading for purity of heart, the command is given, take away the filthy garments. What is the filthy garments again? The defective characters. And the encouraging words are spoken, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a chains of raiment. Now listen to what happens next. The spotless robe of Christ's righteousness is placed upon the tried, tempted, faithful children of God. The despised remnant are clothed in glorious apparel, never more to be defiled by the corruptions of the world. Their names are retained in the, in the Lamb's Book of Life, enrolled among the faithful of all ages, they have resisted the wiles of the deceiver. They have not been turned away from their loyalty by the dragon's roar. Now, they are eternally secure from the tempter's devices. Their sins are transferred to the originator of sin. A fair mitre is set upon their heads. Let's summarize that statement. What happens when the closing scenes of the great day of atonement comes? Men will be required to render obedience to human edicts in violation of the divine law. 
And then at this time, what happens? God's people fully become conscious of the sinfulness of their lives. They clearly discern the exceeding sinfulness of sin and plead for purity of heart. At this point, the command is given, take away the filthy garments, give them a change of raiment, and the unknown defective characters are replaced with a change of raiment, folks. And what we've been trying to accomplish all our lives is accomplished for us with just one command. Take away the filthy garments and give them a change of raiment. And what is the result? At this juncture, God's people are clothed with a robe of Christ, perfect righteousness, never more to be defiled by the corruptions of the world. They are eternally secure from the tempest devices. Listen, this is no longer perfect in Christ, folks, but perfect like Christ. Amen? Do you understand now what the mechanics of the final cleansing is and when this will take place? I wish I had more time. Ten minutes left. Okay, we'll do it. How many of you are beginning to see this for the first time? How many of you are, are, how many of you have hearts that are burning inside of you right now? Yes, this is beautiful. Their sins are transferred to the originator of sin. This is the final step. This is the scapegoat now. This is the scapegoat. No longer perfect in Christ, but perfect like Christ. Never more to be defiled by the corruptions of the world. Eternally secure. No longer partial atonement. Final atonement. Listen. Why is the work of Christ in the most holy place different from the daily service, from, the, uh, from his work in the holy place? Here's why. Great Controversy 483, in the most holy place, this is what God is asking his Father now. Christ now asks that his plan be carried into effect, <clears throat> as if man had never fallen. He asks for his people not only pardon and justification, full and complete, folks, and a seat upon his throne. What kind of pardon and justification is Jesus pleading for his Father now? Remember in the daily service, partial, folks. Limited benefits. What is he asking now? Full and complete. What is the result of that, folks? We are ready for the wedding. You have the white raiment. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to, the, to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. No longer Christ's folks, yours forever to keep. Eternally secure from the tempest devices. Don't you realize that this is really what you signed up for when you became Seventh-day Adventists? Are you going to draw back when it's so clear right now? What about the dead? I have five minutes, seven minutes. When do the dead receive the benefit of the final atonement, folks? We talked about the living, Laodicea, closing scenes of the great day of atonement. What about the dead? When will they receive the white raiment? How many of you know the answer? Yes. When Jesus comes? How about this? The dead in Christ receive the white raiment during the opening scenes of the great day of atonement. The judgment begins with the dead, folks. 
and then moves on to the living. The judgment, when their names come up in the judgment. I'm sorry, the dead, when their names come up in the judgment, they receive the white raiment. Where do I find that? Revelation 6, 9 to 11. If you've done any kind of study on the seven seals, you know that the first four seals end until the dark ages. Is that right? When you come to the fifth seal, you have the convening of the investigative judgment and the dead are investigated first. Here, John is focusing on the martyrs of Jesus. What happens? What is John saying here? And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood and on them that dwell on the earth? And what happens next? And white robes were given them. This is the same white robe Laodicea is told to buy, except Laodicea gets it much later during the closing scenes of the investigative judgment, the closing scenes of the great day of atonement. The dead will receive it first, folks. Does that make sense? Yes. These were people who died defective. We know they died defective because they received the white robe just now. It means they never had it on when they were alive. They were perfect in Christ, but they were not perfect like Christ. Does that make sense? They were justified by faith, sins forgiven, but they did not die perfect like Christ. How many of us here will receive the benefit of the final atonement? Not many, folks. There are two classes right now in the Church of Laodicea. The ten virgins are two classes of people in the Church of Laodicea, the wise and the foolish. The foolish will not receive the benefit of the white raiment, but the wise will be, will receive the benefit of the white, the benefit of the final atonement. In Daniel 12, verse 10, we are told that many will be purified and made white in the time of the end, and the wise will understand and shine like the stars. Are you and I going to be part of this group who will understand and will be made white and purified? Or are we, are we going to be part of that group who will be spewed out of his mouth? For failing to heed the call to be zealous, therefore, and repent. I hope not one of us here will be in the camp. Do you now understand why the, the spirit of prophecy says the announcement that the 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary will be, will be cleansed, is the central pillar and foundation of the Advent faith? Do you understand it more fully now? Yes, you do? Do you now understand why the spirit of prophecy says that we need to make the work of atonement going on in the sanctuary right now, our constant study? Why we need to become more intelligent about it? Why it's not optional? I don't know about you, but I feel so privileged to be part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We are so privileged to be the last, final generation who will experience the full application of the power of the gospel which is not just forgiveness of sin, but the taking away entirely of the root of all human sinning. I don't know if that excites you or not. I am excited about that. Of Laodicea, we have the privilege of reflecting the character of Christ fully while we are alive in sinful flesh. How many of you believe that? And stand in the time of trouble with no intercession. Necessary, folks. With no safety net. Why? Because we are never more to be defiled by the corruptions of the world. We are eternally secure from the tempest devices.
when our filthy garments are taken away from us. The question is, are we willing to humble ourselves right now and acknowledge that we are miserable, naked, poor, and blind, and wretched? Are you willing to do that, folks? Are you willing to heed the call to afflict the soul on the Day of Atonement? Do you have the faith to believe this? Yes or no? Will you believe me if I tell you that this is pure, unadulterated Adventist truth? Yes? Do you have the faith to believe it? And do you also have the patience to wait for it? Or will you draw back, as many are doing right now, and marginalizing the sanctuary and saying, it's all done at the cross? That's a pity. Or that there is no sanctuary in heaven. I don't have time to read this right now. But maybe I will read it. We are now living in the great day of atonement in the typical service while the high priest was making the atonement for Israel. All were required to afflict their souls by repentance of sin and humiliation before the Lord, lest they be cut off from among the people. In like manner, all who would have their names retained in the book of life should now, in the few remaining days of their probation, afflict their souls before God by sorrow for sin and true repentance. There must be deep, faithful searching of heart. The light, frivolous spirit indulged by so many professed Christians must be put away. Here's my final question. What about you? What about me? What about us? Will we receive the benefit of the final atonement? Will God be honored in taking away your filthy garments and give you a chance of raiment? I pray as we finish today that God will look at us and say, he deserves to have his filthy garments taken away. And I will give him a change of raiment. It's not because of any merit on our part, folks, but because we humbled ourselves and afflicted our soul before God. And even that experience is a gift from God. Even repentance and faith are gifts from God. So it's all of God from beginning to end. And it's all of faith from beginning to end. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. God bless you. Let's close with prayer. Our dear loving Father, thank you so much for being so gracious and kind to us this morning. I thank you, Lord, so much for giving me the grace to share this message in spite of myself. May this message transform us. May it produce deep repentance in our hearts, Father. That's what I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.